Amen. That is, that is what sustains us in life is, is Christ and what Christ has done. And the blood of Christ, His atonement, His sacrifice on the cross. It's the core of all that we want to do as a body of believers is to focus on, on Jesus. If somebody tells you that all I need is Christ, that is true. But why do I need Jesus? Why do I need salvation? What is at the core of my need? And the need is that without Christ, I am a dirty sinner who is lost and on my way to hell. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I'll ask you, if you will, let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 13. Today we are going to begin a new chapter. Today's sermon is going to be entitled, Astonished by the Teaching of the Lord. Astonished by the Teaching of the Lord. There are a few themes, if you were to write a few themes down today, it would be yet again God's providence, His provision. It would be prayer. It would be diversity or assortment in God's kingdom. If those are a few themes that you would write down, the power of the gospel, the power of the cross. And by the way, these are themes that you'll find in and out God's word on varying different places as you drop into the text. So I ask if you will, as you turn your Bible to Acts chapter 13, and I will ask you, let's stand together as we read these first three verses together. I'm going to be working through verse 12, but I think verse 1 through 3 will set the framework for us. And we stand in recognition of the infallible and inerrant Word of God. Let's begin in verse 1. Astonished by the Word and the teaching of the Lord. The Bible says, begins in verse 1, that says, Now there was in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. There was Barnabas... There was Simon, who was called Niger. There was Lucius of Cyrene. There was Manion, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Father, we pray for the reading of the word, and as we begin to work through the rest of the verses today, that you will speak to us. Father, that you will hide the messenger behind the cross, that Christ will be exalted, and the church would be edified. We pray for our children who have gone to Children's Church today. May they learn much of your word. Father, may they draw close to you. May we draw close to you. And at the end of this sermon today and in our lives, may we say that we are astonished by the word and the teaching of our Lord. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You will. Now we're going to start a new chapter today and a new chapter and a new drive for the early church under the apostolic leadership, under the leadership of, of the apostles and this chapter will be the first time that we see Saul use 
the name that we are most associated with him, the Apostle Paul. This will be the first time we see this usage of this name. And this verse, or these chapters, they're quite lengthy. If you were to just survey right now to the end of chapter 13, you will see that this chapter is quite lengthy. And so over the next, of two, the next two weeks together, we're going to work together in traveling through chapter 13. But we're, only, we're going to get through with the first 12 verses, uh, for verses today. What I wanted to do for us at the very beginning of this chapter, I wanted to lay some context in the way of an overview, in a way of a summary to help you keep in mind some of the context behind the events and how the Lord is moving the gospel outward into the uttermost parts of the world. So here's a brief uh, overview. I'll have these notes on the screen for you for those who are writing them down. For those who want to make a mental note, that is okay as well. I will keep them on the board briefly, then we'll revisit them next week. Lord willing, unless the Lord returns, and then we'll celebrate and worship Jesus forever and ever anyway. So anyway, the cookie crumbles. Uh, we will benefit from the Word of God and from worship in Him. But I want to highlight a few things as we press through the text. Number one, in verse 1, Paul and Barnabas are selected to travel to the Gentiles and to preach. We'll, in fact, find this at the changing of the apostle Paul's name. They go out to uh, travel to preach to the Gentiles. We see that Paul and Barnabas uh, will preach to Sergius, Paulus, and Elamus, the sorcerer, in verse 7. We see that Paul preached to the people at Antioch that Jesus is Messiah in verse 13. We'll revisit, that. Uh, we'll revisit that next time we are in the book of Acts. The Gentiles embrace and believe the good news message of Jesus in verse 42. And then lastly, uh, the Jews blaspheme and speak against Paul. And then the Jews sought to persecute Paul and Barnabas who then go into Iconium ending at verse 50. So that is a brief overlay, and if you did not have time to write that down, we'll be revisiting that next, uh, next time we're in the book of Acts, uh, November, the 1st of November. So keep that in mind as we will revisit this overview. And if you want to write those down and you didn't get them down, see me after and I'll make sure that you get those as well. But I want you to hear me clearly. We are working all together through 52 verses in chapter 13. I want you to hear me very clearly when I say this. Studying the Bible, studying God's Word is not an easy task. So let me clarify. Studying God's Word thoroughly is not an easy task. But the rewards for outweighing the challenges are great. What I mean by studying God's Word thoroughly is from Genesis to the, to the book of Revelation. The child of God is not called to cherry-pick His Word, but is called to read it thoroughly from cover to cover and weigh every word that God has given to us. It doesn't matter if we are in Leviticus, Numbers, or in the Gospels. And there are many followers of Jesus today, I'll submit to you, that is spiritually anemic because they do not spend adequate time in God's Word. Now there are 52 verses in chapter 13 and we are going to hit some of them hard. And you're going to be challenged today. I ask you right now from where you are, say a prayer for me. 
Say a prayer for me. The last time that we were together, we finished out chapter 12. And we found the release of the Apostle Peter from prison. An angel came to the assistance of the Apostle Peter for a jailbreak. An angel of the Lord had visited him in the, in the jail cell and woke him up and the chains fell off. Peter put on his cloak and marched out to the iron gate. It flung open and he marched out of that prison iron gate. Peter walked out a free man. And there were so many illustrations that we can draw from this. Not only the physical and literal freeing of Peter from prison, but an illustration of being free in Jesus. The chains of sin and the shackles of sin fall off because of the work of Christ and the separation that keeps us from God has been flung open by the work of Christ. And now we have access to God the Father through the work of Jesus Christ. Peter runs to the house of a woman by the name of Mary. She is noted to be the mother of John Mark who also wrote the Gospel of Mark. She comes, he comes to the door. He knocks on the door. The church was fervently praying, outstretched arms, praying to the Lord for Peter. They were interrupted by this knock. Rhoda, which means a rose, a servant girl, came and answered the door and came back to let them know that Peter was at the door. But they did not believe it was the apostle Peter that they had just been fervently praying for. They perceived that this was a guardian angel of Peter. It took on his image. And this praying church had doubted the power of the Lord to deliver Peter from the hands of the enemy, from the hands of, of Herod, who just a few moments later, by the end of chapter 12, we see because of pride and his arrogancy that he was eat up by worms on the inside. Here is Herod, this people-pleasing, egotistical, narcissistic sinner who did not care who he stepped on to get the fame and notoriety that he desired. And at the end of Herod's life, the Lord began to continue His church and move His church out again. The Lord began to send out His people once again. And through all of chapter 12, through all of our discourse through last week, there was one verse that stood out as being one of the most glorious verses in all of chapter 12. And the most glorious verse did not even deal with Peter being released from prison. The most glorious verse in chapter 12 was chapter 12 was verse 24 that said, But the word of God increased and multiplied. In light of persecution, in light of imprisonment, in light of the enemy breathing down your neck, in light of the enemy wanting to throw you in jail and stifle the gospel of Jesus, the word of God increased and multiplied, and it does so today. And so, we continue to see how God is moving out His, His church. And today it will be through the avenue of Saul or Paul and Barnabas. With our Bibles open, gazing into verse 1 of chapter 13, I want us to look at a view of God's assorted kingdom. A view of God's assorted or diverse kingdom. What I do not want you to hear from me this morning is a fusing together of the way society has weaponized this terminology or term diversity. Do not get it confused. Do not get it twisted. 
We are not using diversity in the way that our society has weaponized it. It would be on the biblical view of diversity. Calling all people groups to the Lord Jesus through every tongue, nation, creed, and color to worship the Lord Jesus. The apostles were not out to counsel culture at every time they thought that something was not diverse enough. The diversity in the Bible in these first few verses is a picture of the nations sharing in on the good news proclamation that Jesus is alive. Not only is it red and yellow, black and white, that can receive salvation, but it is also those who can now go out and share the good news as well. Verse 1 says that they were at the church at Antioch. There was prophets and there was teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, or Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and then Saul. I want you to remember that Saul and Barnabas spent a whole lot of time, a whole year, teaching in Antioch. We see that at the end of chapter 11. And they are building this gospel, gospel community, and they're doing so by teaching doctrine. They are doing so by teaching Jesus, fellowshipping together, and we might use the terminology today, doing life together. Building, building gospel community, investing in one another's lives, and not becoming isolationist. It is because of their efforts, and because now the Lord is growing their church, He is growing the church with every people from every walk of life, we see a diverse listing. We see an assortment of people in the first two verses together. These men are called prophets and teachers. Now, there are some who debate over whether or not these are two separate offices, whether there are some that are called into the office of prophet or preacher, and then some that are teachers. I will say that they are both of the same. I will say also, as I say, they are both the same, that the church of Christ needs both teachers and preachers. They need, we need both preachers and teachers. These are people who will herald the Word of God and then taught doctrine. And both are vitally important for church growth. You want to see a church grow? Let the rudder let the steering mechanism for any body of Christ be the teach word of God and the preached word of God. That is what's going to steer your church for growth. And I don't know about you, but I want to know what I believe. If somebody says that all I need to know and believe is that Jesus died for me, and that is true for salvation, but I need to know that I need to repent of my sins. I need to know why Jesus had to die. I want to know the nuts and bolts of teaching and theology. I want to know the nuts and bolts. I want to leave a place of worship. When you leave these doors today, when you walk out these doors, when I leave, I want to be satisfied that I have encountered the living God. It doesn't matter whether I walk out these doors and I feel good about myself. If I feel good that I have adequately worshipped the Lord, 
I would say that I have adequately given glory to God. That is our primary objective when we leave this place, is that we have been edified and by our edification we have given glory to Jesus. We have made much of Jesus and less of ourselves. Teachers provide the basic information for living a life that is set apart for Jesus. Your teachers, your Sunday school teachers, your small group facilitators and leaders, they teach to give us the appropriate biblical examination of how one's life is consecrated to Jesus, and then preachers or prophets provide a special pointed guidance from the Word of the Lord as it is needed. As it is needed for today. There are needs today in this congregation that might have been different from yesterday. So Barnabas and Jew, and we look at Barnabas here as the first listed. He's Jewish. So here's this assortment. He's from Jerusalem. Simeon is a Jewish name, so he's most likely a Hebrew. But he also carries a name in your English translation that carries over from the Latin. And this word is niger. And this simply means black. What we can determine that we have a Jewish person and we have Simeon who was a black man. Black in complexion. There is Lucius of Cyrene who was on the northern portion of Africa. Or Libya. Then we have Manian who is also Jewish. Who is a lifelong friend of Herod Antipas. Not Herod Agrippa, who was eat up by worms last time we looked, but Herod Antipas. And this name might sound familiar to you. Manian was brought up in the home of, of Herod, and most more than likely, and more than likely, as he grew up in the home, he was nurtured in this home. Now we find that Barnabas is listed first because in this regard he is given the lead here. The listing of these men demonstrate how ethically diverse Antioch has become. They're a mixed bag. Now there's some irony with Manian and with also Herod. If you recall the gospel accounts, particularly around John the baptizer, Herod Antipas would end up beheading John the baptizer while well, Manian would go on to become a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus. So one would become a persecutor, and one would become a proclaimer in the kingdom. And then the end of the list ends with Saul, who, is, who we know as the Apostle Paul. Now here is this diverse group of men who are meeting together. And the Bible says in verse 2, that while they were worshiping the Lord, and while they were fasting, the Holy Spirit said... Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. I want to point out a couple of things in this verse. A few things I want to point out. First, the translation uses this word or phrasing, while they were worshiping. Okay, I hope that's in your Bible, while they were worshiping. This literally is a translation that says, ministering. While they were ministering, the Holy Spirit set them apart, and sent them out. Could it be just a, just a hunch? Maybe it's grounded in the original wording of this too. Could it be that while they were ministering, while they were serving, while they were, while they were attending the needs of the people 
in both their words and their deeds? Could it be that while they were ministering, that they were also in a state of worshiping? Could it be while they were serving others, they were also worshiping? I submit to you, that's exactly what we see. This is the framework of every believer. As you serve Jesus, whether it's shoebox, backpacks, pancakes, supper, Baptist on mission, whatever it is, as you serve, let it be a lifestyle of worship. And then the fasting indicates the urgent desire to see the will of the Lord done and the gospel spread. And then fasting from something, distancing themselves something. could be food, more than likely it was, but distancing themselves something that is a potential idol. Distancing yourself from something that could stand in opposition to worship and seeking the Lord. Distance themselves from it may be food. For you it may be it may be electronics, it might be television, it might be a number of different things, but distance yourself from those things, fast from those things that might stand in opposition to worship and seeking the Lord. And in doing so, they were sent out by the Lord. And after they fasted and after they were praying, they laid hands on them and they sent them out in verse 3. So diversity is not only in skin color, age or gender okay again do not be confused with the way that our culture and society has reframed and twisted this word and weaponized it diversity is not only in skin color age or gender kingdom diversity involves everyone who has ever been saved or redeemed by jesus christ you want to know the prerequisite for kingdom work it is, ye must be born again. And in these first verses, there's an example to us all that the Lord uses all types of people for the sake of the gospel. Imagine going from a very closed group, such as the Jewish understanding of, of them being called or chosen or God's special covenant people as they were for a particular time in history. Imagine going from a very close group of people, the Jewish community, thinking that they, the only people who would receive redemption was them. Imagine it seeing that they're the only people who God saw and cast favor upon. Going from a very closed group of people who are now going out together with people from diverse places to diverse places from diverse places to diverse places. That's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel. It brings people together instead of scattering. The gospel brings people together instead of scattering. And by the way, this was a theme in scripture, a scattering and God bringing his people together. And now we are brought, to we are brought together through the blood of Christ. The good news of Jesus unites instead of divides. Listen, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Remember, I asked you to pray for me. It doesn't matter how much money that you have or whether or not your granddaddy laid the bricks of this church. It doesn't matter if, if your people founded or chartered this church. 
Now those things are, I think, important historically. And I think those things are important historically, but the, the gospel transcends all of that. The gospel transcends all of that. I'm not saying that those are bad things, but sometimes we get caught up on those things and we forget that the gospel transcends the very bricks on this building, the very mortar that's in the walls, the podium we use, the pews that we sit in, the air conditioner that we run. The gospel transcends all of this. And if this church were to crumble tomorrow, the gospel of Christ would still stand triumphant and go forward. The Lord doesn't see skin color. He doesn't see social divides when it comes to His kingdom. I want you to notice in the text, those who are called are moved by the Holy Spirit and not by our own motivations. And those who are sent are also chosen, not upon requirements and prerequisites of men, but by divine providence. People are called by God without the prerequisites imposed upon them by humankind. God does the sending. You know when a pastor is called to the church, he is called by God, not that church. He is called by God and not that church. Well, they say, we've called a pastor. You mean that God has called a pastor or a leader to that local congregation? Praise God, he has. Amen. It's his work. So those who are sent by God are also fervently praying and fasting and worshiping but then they seek involvement from the rest of the body. They want the rest of the body to gather and to be encouraged. And so now we see this diverse group of men. And the Lord is going to grow and continue to grow His church. How? How? In preaching the power of the cross. Preaching the power of the cross. And by crossing lines of division, the gospel defeats the sinful lusts in the world. The power of the cross defeats false wisdom in the world. The gospel of, of Christ defeats weapons that the world uses against Christ's church. See, here's the thing. If you want to defeat racism, if you want to defeat schisms in the church, if you want to defeat factions in the church and divisions and quarreling and squabbling, preach and teach Christ. And then send those other folks to do likewise. We've had this conversation this past Thursday morning. We said, well, what if this church grew to the point where every seat was full in here and we had to, we had to put out chairs and filled up in the balcony? Hey, I pray for that. I hope that God will do that. But listen, I think if we add another addition on to this church, we would be disobeying God. If we grow this church where it looks like we might have to break ground, we better break ground, but it better be as we send people out to break ground in other places. We are called to build the kingdom, not our kingdom. So if you want to defeat these things, racism and schisms and factions and divisions, preach Christ and then send others to do likewise regardless of the social status, regardless of their ethnicity. But not only do we see God's diverse and assorted kingdom, but then we see God's kingdom will also confront the world with the truth. I don't know if you know this or not, but we are commanded as an imperative to defend the word, to defend truth. How does Paul and Barnabas find themselves in another arena to broadcast truth. So let's find out. 
First, Christ's mission, they are missionaries, they are sent out by the Holy Spirit. Even though they laid hands upon them, they are sent out by God Almighty. Look at verse 4. So they are sent out by who? By the Holy Spirit. And they went down to Seleucia, or Seleucia, depending on your English or Greek rendering. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now, the prefix of the term sent out, you see that at the very beginning. So they, they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. This is the Greek word ek. And this word might be familiar to you if I was to use the term ekklesia. So ekklesia just means church, assembly. So they are the sent out ones as the ekklesia. They are sent out by the Holy Spirit. They sent Paul and Barnabas to preach the gospel west and beyond. Where's the first place that they're going to go and preach? The first place that they will go to preach is the synagogue. And they will persuade with their Jewish brothers and sisters there. They arrive at uh, Salamis and they proclaim the word of God in the synagogues in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John Mark to assist them as well. So you'll see this slide here. This gives us an idea of where they went. So I've got those circled. We see uh, uh, Salamis, the whole island of, of Paphos, Cyprus, Seleucia, there at Antioch, and you'll see how far that they traveled as they, they set sail for this island. They met up with John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, and they try to persuade their Jewish brothers that Jesus is Messiah and that He is risen. He is the one that you have been praying about. He is the one that was forecasted all the way in Genesis 3 as the one that will crush the head of the serpent. He is the one that you have waited for who in Isaiah 53 came and by his stripes they were healed. He is the one, he is the Messiah that they have been longing for. And when they had gone through the whole island, you see the whole island there, they covered the whole island. And whether this is hyperbolic speech or not, whether it's hyperbole or not, it just, even if we, were, if we, even if we land on that, they, they did as much as they could on this island to lift up Jesus. And as they gone through the whole island, verse 6 says this, they came upon a certain magician. He was a Jewish false prophet by the name of Bar-Jesus. And this name or this uh, will give you an indication of the zeal that they had for the good news, that they covered the whole island of Paphos. They covered as much of the island as they possibly could to persuade them the truth of Jesus. And it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that they went. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit that they had courage to cover the, this island. This is where they come across this false prophet by the name of Bar Jesus or the Son of Jesus. This is not the first time that the apostles would come across false teaching, and it is not the last time that the body of Christ will come across false teachers as well. Sadly, the landscape of Christendom today is littered with false prophets and false teachers. But this particular false prophet was an advisor to the proconsul. Sergius Paulus. And Sergius had the power on Cyprus. He was given power under the Roman Empire. And he acted on this island like a governor, or you might call him a deputy of sorts. He adhered to the law and he sought out the 
to bring about the orders or the wishes of the Roman Empire. And here is this false prophet. This false prophet was his worm tongue or his ill advisor. And Jesus even said that many will come in my name. In Matthew 24, verse 5, many will come in my name and this son of Jesus... It goes to show you that when the Lord is at work, that the enemy will try to oppose that work. You want to see the enemy come against you. Preach Christ. You want to see the enemy come and rear his ugly head? Make much of Jesus. Start telling your lost neighbors about Christ. Start challenging false teaching. Start challenging uh, ill teaching. Wrong teaching. Start challenging those things. But even in all this, my response to that, church, is don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged when you see the enemy coming against the body of Christ. Press on in truth. And then it says of Bar Jesus, this son of Jesus, that he was the proconsul or a counsel to Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul. Why did he summon them? Because he sought to hear the word of God. Balalemus, the magician, that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So here is the enemy trying to uh, persuade or turn the attention of the proconsul's uh, attention away from the Word of God. It reminds me of the Word of God that is cast into the soil. And the birds are flocking around. And the birds come down to pick the seed out of the shallow, the shallow soil. And, and this is how this bar Jesus is waiting, anticipating, trying to coax, trying to coax the proconsul away from the faith, away from hearing the Word of God. He wanted... Sergius wanted to hear the word from the Lord. He's heard about the exploits of the, of the apostles and has heard about the Jesus they preach and no doubt has reached his ears or he would not have asked to hear the word of God. But I want you to get this. The full counsel of God is almost like a drug. To study God's word is almost... Addictive. It is almost like a, a drug. It becomes addictive. The deeper in God's word you go, the more you want. The deeper in God's word, from cover to cover you go. And not only that, but then to dig in God's word with other believers. Man, I love getting together. I love it getting together with like-minded believers and digging in the treasure of God's Word. It's like the more you dig and the more you glean, the more you want. See, maybe the issue with biblical illiteracy in the church today is that we have not dug deep enough to get to some roots. Regardless, sir, he wanted to hear God's Word. He was intrigued by God's Word. And this Word that was preached by Saul and Barnabas already in Antioch teaching. And so this Alimus or Alimus, which means wise in the Aramaic or magician, he opposed them. And so here the showdown ensues. And we're going to see how Saul or Paul will rebuke him. 
Verse 9 says, Saul, who was also called Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. He looks intently at him. I want you to stop there. Okay. Luke informs the reader that Saul is also called Paul. Now, this is a bit of a sidestep. This is the first time that we see this. And this change in his name is not so much about his conversion on the road to Damascus. We often say he was changed so radically on the road to Damascus that he changed his name. Yes, he was changed. But there's something more to the, to the changing of, of, Paul, of Saul's name to Paul. So let me say this. Saul was his Hebrew name. And Paul is his Greek name. And the changing of his name has gospel implications. If you read the letter of of Paul, he would say, I have become all things to all men. Right? Remember that? I can make much of Christ. Changing of his name has gospel implication. It is a shifting into the Gentile phase of his ministry. We find this in Romans chapter 1, this phrasing to the Jew first, then to to the Gentile, Romans 1 verse 16, Romans 2 verse 9 and 10. This should be familiar to you. To the Jew first, then to the Gentile. It's not so much about his radical conversion on the road to Damascus. Yes, it was a byproduct. It had gospel implications. Luke says that he was full of the Holy Spirit, meaning that what he was about to say was from the Lord and not from carnality, not from the flesh, not from a sin-induced mind. It wasn't something that he just got angry about and spit it out out of the flesh. And by the way, let me say this. The only time you and I as believers are to rebuke others in the body of Christ if it is truly from the Lord and not from ourselves. Most of us don't have to worry about a rebuke or an admonition because we don't practice that enough. Too many times we try to speak or we might act strongly against something maybe in the church we see that's going wrong and we want to speak out against it. We act out strongly. We speak against it. Something that we don't perceive as truth But we speak out of turn and we speak in our own strength and we end up making a mess of the situation. Why do you think that it is churches today are in the shape they're in? It's because they have spoken out of turn and they have not been speaking as they are led by God. And they speak out of turn. They speak out of preference versus possession by the Holy Spirit. We end up making a mess of the situation. So yeah, we are called to call out falsehood and heretical teaching and damnable teachings, but be wise, be gentle, be easy, and be led by the Lord by His Spirit. Listen listen to Paul's rebuke. Now he is led by the Holy Spirit. This is what he says to this, this, um, this son of Jesus, quote unquote. He says, you are the son of the devil. You're an enemy of all righteousness. You're full of all deceit full of villainy. Will you stop making crooked the straight path of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, midst and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. So instead of him being a counsel now to the pro-counsel, giving him guidance, now he has to be led by the hand. 
Paul called him a child of the devil, a trickster, unscrupulous, totally depraved, a perverter of truth, and then says, will you not cease from twisting the word and the work of the Lord? How many in churches today, under the guise of Christian, fit this description? When people in the pews run off the preachers, run off the pastors, and run off the participants in worship, and we sit there and we turn a blind eye to it. But not the Apostle Paul. The Lord is using Paul to shut up the eyes of this false teacher from seeing that the proconsul could not spiritually see and, and now that he could be made alive in Jesus. Look at verse 12. He believed and when he saw what had occurred, he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This proconsul was amazed and astonished and believed in Jesus just because of the miracle. That's not what that says, does it? He was astonished at what? The teaching of the Lord. Why is it that people today diminish preaching the full counsel of God's Word? Miracles and signs and wonders never saved one single solitary soul. And in this case, it only helped the proconsul to hear a little clearer the teaching of Jesus, and he was astonished. So the implication is twofold to be struck with astonishment. And here again is Luke playing on words. It's a play on words offered up by Luke. Just like Elimus or Elimus, Bar-Jesus, was struck immediately with blindness from the Lord, so was the proconsul struck immediately with astonishment from the preached truth. And he was an intelligent man. Why does Luke add that? Why does Luke add that this man was a smart, intelligent man? Probably the same way in which he listed the catalog at the beginning, Barnabas, and Simeon, and Lucius, and Manan, and Saul. The same way he probably mentioned them as well. Because it adds to the overall picture of God's diverse and assorted kingdom. That in God's kingdom there is poor and there is rich. In God's kingdom there is educated and there is uneducated. There is white, black, whatever ever ethnicity, whatever tongue, Jew, Gentile, all can be astonished by the word of the Lord and be saved and serve Him well. And so, we must be willing, like Paul, to confront false teaching and stand on truth. We confront false teaching with the expounded Word of God and a holistic understanding of the Bible. What do I mean by that? A total understanding of Scripture. Why? Because many cultic churches use the Bible as their proof text, but they do not expound upon it as a whole unit. What we are reading about in the book of Acts, I should have been referencing in Genesis, I should have been referencing in Leviticus, 
I should have been referencing through the Torah. I should be referencing in the letters later mentioned by Paul. I should be reading the Bible not as a proof text with one or two verses that I cherry pick, but reading God's Word as a whole unit. If you read a novel, how many of you pick up a novel, whoever wrote it, and how many open up the chapter 5 and just start reading there? Anybody? Why do we do that with God's Word? Why do we, do, why do we pick up the Bible and we drop in, in the text without having a total understanding from cover to cover, from beginning to end of God's Word? Read it, study it as it is God's holistic Word to us, His total Word to us. And so these cultic churches will cherry-pick verses to make their case. There are churches that very, their very doctrine is very close, if not heretical. They are on the threshold of heresy. Anything that teaches that other than Jesus is the means of salvation, anybody that teaches that there is more means to salvation than the blood of Christ... His death and resurrection is heretical or on the verge of a false teaching. Next time you visit a church, next time you go to a funeral, next time you go even to a wedding, and there is a person who is standing and is supposed to be proclaiming God's Word, supposed to be a herald of God's Word, I challenge you to do this. No matter if it's Piney Grove, no matter where it is, you take out a piece of paper and you write down how many times the name of Jesus is used in a way that forms a gospel picture. I'm not just talking about sprinkling the name of Jesus on your ending prayer. I'm not just talking about saying Jesus at the end of your offering or sprinkling Jesus on something here or there. I'm talking about using the name of Jesus that forms a gospel picture. I thought to myself, setting in a funeral recently. I said, when the preacher stands up to preach my funeral, I want every single sentence to have something about Jesus in it. Write it down. Write it down if the Bible is used, if the Bible is opened, if the words in God's Word is unpacked, if we are giving exhortation, if we are giving challenge, if we are giving rebuke, if we are given something to grab a hold of too. I don't want to walk out the door again thinking and feeling good in and of myself that I have somehow, I'm pleased with my state of worship today, but I want to leave knowing that I have made much of Jesus, that He has been glorified, that Jesus has been left up. And yes, if it crushes me because of my sin that day, then so be it. And if a church teaches any other way to salvation, then Jesus, stay away or confront. Now, a few things I want to mention in conclusion. The gospel of Jesus, His death and resurrection transcends all ethnicity, all backgrounds. It transcends where we come from and what we have done in our lives. It transcends all of that. It transcends all ethnicity. Now, God can use our backgrounds and ethnicity for His glory, yes. It transcends all of that. It moves us up out of our seats and out into the world. The Holy Spirit gives us power. He sends us. He gives us power to confront. 
even when the enemy does all that he can to disrupt the message of Jesus. He gives us courage. Not only does he give us the courage, but he gives us the command. And the power in Jesus to confront false teaching and false heresy. Now some of us in here might say, that's not my place. Listen, I would just say, if you hear false teaching, wherever you are, call it out. But in order to do that, you need to know God's Word. And do so in gentleness and meekness, looking to edify the kingdom and not tear down. The problem on the other side is this, is so many will use the Bible as a weapon in the way that they want to cut down and cut down ministers and cut down churches. Use it with gentleness and meekness, looking to restore and build up instead of tear down. So he gives us courage to do that. So in closing, let me pray this. Are we astonished enough by the word, like Sergius here, to hear the word? Are we astonished enough by the word of God to move up and to move out in the name of Jesus?